Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. I want to sort of frame the issue, and there's, there's a lot of wonderful material, I think, um, to read about this question. Um, and, I, I, and it's actually become even more significant because of the election, and that most of us have taken note of the fact that there really is inequality in America. Um, and, and for a long time, people were saying, you know, this is an issue, we should talk about it. Um, I, I don't think we talked about it. Um, that's number one. And, and, and it really wasn't on our agenda. I don't think it was on the Jewish agenda. But it's not just that the question of inequality wasn't on the Jewish agenda. The question of too much money wasn't on the Jewish agenda. Um, it's almost, I would say it's a taboo issue. Um, and, you know, maybe... You know, maybe it's safe for us to, talk, to discuss it here now at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, uh, but, but I, I, I and, and it's not a, by the way, it's not a question about the fact that, that Judaism should be teaching people not to be successful. Um, but that there ought to be a conversation as to um, what, what, what in my mind is what's enough. What's enough? What's sufficient? Um, and, and, and how do you understand the fact that you live with abundance as a blessing? It, it almost, I must say, it, call, it calls for religion to be very out front, very present, and make some contribution to people's understanding, or, or at least push them to think about who they are in the world. And, um, I, 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 it's something that I, that, that I, that I haven't seen. Um, I mean, we're surrounded by it, uh, and, and thank you very much. Uh, um, now, I, I, I actually, I, I, started, I, I started talking about this a little bit, a little bit, after the, the Madoff, uh, uh, I, think, I, I think I had uh, a talk that I called A Decade at Bernie's. <laughs> something like that, um, or and uh, or uh, uh, and um, you know, and, and, and I, I, it was surprising that people were so shocked by what happened, um, and and I I started to raise this question, you know, maybe there's too much around, and maybe there's too much in the Jewish community as well. Um, and, and there's something, something made me uneasy. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, Shmuley mentioned that I built a Hillel. We built a building. 
Well, if there was at one point, we, we don't have a, you know, we have a nice building, the 20,000 square feet. Well, within these 20,000 square feet, at one time, there were actually three rooms, three designations, with names of people who were either under indictment or, or were suspected of something. One, you know, one of them was a feeder to, to Madoff. Uh, the other one actually had been involved in something and carried a wire to incriminate a whole community of ultra-Orthodox Jews. And uh, he, he had to walk around with an armed guard and, <laughs> and, you know, for a time. Um, and, I, and the third person was uh, eventually cleared, acquitted. Uh, and he was a good guy. He just worked with someone who wasn't good. But, but, but it, it, it's, it's, something struck me that's a bit, that maybe is naive, but that it's impossible to have such sums without there being problems. It's rare. It's very rare. And if you know that, people know this about business, so why aren't we talking about it? Uh, I mean, we know why we don't talk about it, but, but um, it seems to me a, a, a responsible tradition does. Hesch, Heschel talked about this. Um, and, 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 the, and, and, I, I know it's a, and this is a question that sort of David Hartman would have asked, which is, it's a type of test. Do our teachings about justice really work? Or are they only theoretical teachings for a time where we were oppressed and we had no power, so we had the highest values in the world. But when you know, we become like everybody else in terms of our, uh, our position in the world, or more, 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 more even better than everybody else in a way, uh, more blessed than everybody else, we, we simply fall into, the, fall into this trap. Um, you know, uh, uh, so I, 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 was, I was sensitive to the fact that um, we, 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 we weren't, as I said, we weren't talking about this. Um, and I, I want to add one other element, and then I'm going to sort of, we'll dive into the material. Um, some years ago, I read a book, I was teaching a class on, um, on the contemporary Jewish experience in America, and I read a book about how Jews became Americans. And the point that was made was a historian who wrote the book. Uh, I don't think he taught in San Francisco State. And the point that he made was that America was a consumer society. Um, and Jews became Americans by becoming super consumers. Um, and he pointed out, actually, that in the, in the teens of the last century, I have to mention that, because uh, 100 years ago, that Lord and Taylor used to take out Yiddish ads in the, in the newspapers uh, advertising special Shabbos sales. So, so, you know, I, so, I would say, you know, so I would say that you know, Jews traded um, uh, uh, shul for, uh, for shopping. And, and, um, and, you know, and then there was a line in, the, in the, one of the Streisand movies um, I forget the t name of the movie, but, uh, but that the only Jewish thing her mother taught her was uh, the, that Bergdorf has uh, to go to the Bergdorf sales every Saturday or something like that. Was that uh, something, something of that sort? Did you mention that Streisand has a name on the hillow? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she has a name on her hillow, too. Yeah, yeah. No, but she, but, but, but she wasn't one of those who was, uh, who, who was uh, uh, under, under indictment. But you're, all right, you know, but you're right. Listen, they did a whole play. In, in LA about 
Streisand's basement and, you know, and, and, and these sort of like uh, her, her, she shops in her own basement, something of that sort, you know, and, and her, her accumulation. It's about, uh, uh, I mean, we, 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 we are a culture of accumulation and acquisition, um, and one wouldn't know that we sit on a rich spiritual tradition. You know, so, and that, that's, you know, the other side of this that I want to sort of get into. Now, uh, part of my road into this uh, conversation and learning was through Eric Fromm. Now, Eric Fromm was, I, I don't know if, if he was a communist, he certainly was oriented to socialism. And, you know, and, but apart from that, he was a very religious Jew in his youth. Um, he was from, I mean, we'll say Fromm was from, and, and he, was in, he was in the circle of Franz Rosenzweig. When Rosenzweig was dying and of, the, of ALS, and there was a minion in his house every, every Shabbat, um, so there were a circle of, small circle of people, uh, Ernst Simon came, um, and, and Fromm was one, Ernst Kassir, I think, was one of those, the philosopher, and Fromm was there uh, every Shabbos in, in, in this minion. Um, and, and Fromm wrote, wrote a book called you, you, you Shall Be As Gods, which is a wonder, wonderful book. Um, and then he wrote this book that I picked up, To Have or To Be. Um, and I want to start, and I have a section here. I want to start with from, I want us to read it together because you'll see. But here, I want to just start with one, one you don't have this quote in, in, your, in your sheets. I had to leave out something. Um, and, and he writes as follows. Um, and, okay. Um, to, to have is a deceptively simple expression. Every human being has something a body, clothes, shelter, on up, on up to the modern man or woman who has a car, television set, a washing machine, etc. Living without having something is virtually impossible. Why then should having be a problem? Yet the linguistic history of having indicates that the word is indeed a problem. To those who believe that to have is a most natural category of human existence, it may come as a surprise to learn that many languages have no word for to have. In Hebrew, for instance, I have must be expressed by the indirect form yesh li, which means it is to me. Not that I have, it is to me, right? It's in, it's in relational terms, actually. In fact, languages that express possession in this way, rather than by I have, predominate. It is interesting to note that in the development of many languages, the construction it is to me is followed later on by the construction I have. But as Emile Benvenisti has pointed out, the evolution does not occur in the reverse direction. In other words, it never goes from I have to it is to me. This fact suggests that the word for to have develops in connection with the development of private property while it is absent in societies with predominantly functional property, that is, possession for use. Further sociolinguistic studies should be able to show if and to what extent this hypothesis is valid. Now, I'm one of those people, you know, who when, I, when you study antiquity or you see a, a, a particular form of life that we no longer have, it is not, doesn't present this be, uh, as an ideal that we should aspire to. 
we're not going to return to a pre-property form of life. The, the question always is, is what can we learn from a pre-property form of life that would inform and enrich, to use the word enrich, our lives today? That's always the question. Not to revert back to sort of natural existence. It's not going to happen. I mean, that's what evolution is really all about. The question is, do, was there something that we learned? Was there some wisdom that we had that we lost when life became more complicated in the way it is? And, it, and life can be even more, in some ways even more complicated if we recover that idea to help complexify the life that we live today a little bit with another value that we don't usually stress. Right, and we can stop here. That's, <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, no. It, it, I, I, you know, I, I see, I look at, you know, when you look at something like this, you realize this is a nugget. This is a treasure. The idea of I ha language, how language is used. Because don't, you don't even pay attention to this. A simple usage. And it has a, a, a world connected to it. All right. So that's, that's, just, that's, that's a beginning. Now, I, I, and I, maybe instead of reading this, you know, you tell me, what, 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 do you think, what do you know about our early experience that should give you a, an inclination that indeed we were a people that was less inclined to have? Yes? We had to learn to lose everything more than one time. Okay, all right, so that's been our historical experience. Uh, okay, and then what about our origins? Uh, yes, I know. Well, in particular, say something about nomadic, more particular. Well, in, in that if you can only carry with you. I mean, our, our origin story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, we come out of slavery. And where do we go? Nothing, and we go into the desert. Into the desert. Years. So yeah. we only have, you, we have natural limitations. We can only have what we carry. And yet our, our, we still I mean, manage to bring gangrenes and dolphin skins out. Right. <laughs> right, and we built a very, a very beautiful, uh, portable... Uh, tabernacle, but even that, I, mean, I have to say something, I think the Bible is amazing, because if you think about it, the temple is supposed to be the grand center, right? Yet the temple is in the book of Kings, and it's, you know, Solomon, and so on and so forth. Most, most, most children never get, you know, they don't get there, uh, in yeshiva, they say, you know, whatever. But, but, but the, the Torah preserves a story about a portable tent. What glory is that? You know, God says it's enough. A tent is okay. You don't have to build a big stone building for me, you know. So that you know. So so, so there, there are. There's a lot here that 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 we can reflect on. That uh, it seems to it says something about what what we value and, and about that experience. We were. I was in. Um, Dorita and I were in uh, Myanmar uh, when when we were there. I think two, a year and a half ago, or something like that. Two year, two years ago, and I learned something which was striking which was that every Burmese, male and female, during their lifetime, um, uh, takes a vow, uh, enters the monastery for a period, short, at least once, for a short period of time, and, and usually many times. In other words, a few times during their life, they take a month off uh, to live with the monks and live on the regimen uh, uh, without. And, um, and, and it it does have an impact on, the, uh, on, on their personality. You know, that's the thing. It's, it, it, it builds a certain type of character. In some ways, I thought, you know, the, the, the Burmese are lovely people, maybe a little bit uh, too passive, and, uh, and, and it allows for, you know, the ruthless 
military people to abuse them when they when they when because there are always are ruthless people in the society who who take advantage of an exploitive situation. But but all right. But but we we have some formative ideas about uh, some ideas about who we are. Let's take a look at. Uh, uh, yes. I don't want to over romanticize the past, but yeah. uh, for better and worse, we're hyper focused on the individual today and the individual's Correct. attainment as opposed to the collective's well-being. And sort of connected to that, I imagine that the insatiable quality we experience today wasn't present in the same way. The notion of never having enough. Right. Right. Uh, when, when actually your needs are met, your human needs are met. Right. I mean, well, well, we know from human origins, people live, lived in societies where they lived with their necessities. You know, and, 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 and um, you know, th there were a few wealthy people. You know, Abraham is represented as a chieftain, so he had a lot of cattle. One of the things we know is, regarding the laws of sacrifice, most people didn't have, you know, animals to spare that they would, that they would be, uh, you know, bringing to sacrifice uh, as a voluntary sacrifice, you know? It wasn't something that people, people did often. So, so uh, anyway, I, 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 I want to proceed. Let's, oh, well, we, 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 we need time. So let's, let's start reading. Let's read this text. This is a, this is a wonderful text, the first one. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't, uh, we'll move around the table. What is your name? Julie. Julie, why don't you begin? One of the main themes. One of the main themes of the Old Testament is leave what you have, free yourself from all fetters, be. Okay, all right, and be, to be. And, and um, uh, so what, you know, sometimes you need the eye of, of, of a person who, who, who's, who seems to be reading a text that we're very familiar with, but from a very different perspective, and see what he comes up with. Because I, you know, I, I certainly have read the Torah many, many, many times uh, over the years, and, and to hear uh, from was so fresh and refreshing. Continue, the history of the Hebrew tribes. The history of the Hebrew tribes begins with the command to the first Hebrew hero, Abraham, to give up his country and his clan. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham is to leave what he has, land and family, and go to the unknown. You see, how do we read that story usually? What is it all about? Leave your history. Yeah, well, well or, not leave your stuff. Right. Or 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 leave the idolatry behind. Right? And go to the land that you're going to possess. Right? Instead, what Fram recognizes, I, if you read the text carefully, if I'm not mistaken, it says El Haaretz Asher Areka, to the land that I'm going to sh show you. So there's this type of vision. He doesn't know where he's going. I mean, that, that's, that's interesting. He, he doesn't know that he's going to have much. Just, you know, go, leave. And, and, and we know in, in, in Hasidism already, I mean, Fram most probably knows this, from your sort of materialism. Leave your materialism. Leave your homeboundedness. Wow. You know, and, 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 and go, go, go ahead, continue. Yet? Uh, yet his descendants settle on a new soil and new clannishness develops. This process leads to more severe bondage. Precisely because they become rich and powerful in Egypt, they become slaves. Oh, so how do they become rich and powerful in Egypt? Joseph. 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 
So that, you know, so, so no, this, this is from socialism, you know. Um, but, but he understand, but you know, he, he saw what Joseph did. Joseph basically organized Egypt in such a way that, the, that his brothers would be on the richest soil, and, and they had, and uh, he also enriched the pharaoh. He created a culture of wealth for the, for the for, uh, and by the way, not only for pharaoh, when he nationalized all the property, it says twice, the Chama Lebevitz emphasizes this. You're shaking your head, you know. No, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he wrote a Scouts lecture, which I actually use at Pesach. Ah. Uh, Joseph is the public administrator. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and what? Great lecture. Yeah, and, and one of the things that one of the things that 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 Joseph uh, that that the text says he didn't do was he took the land away from everybody except from the priests. Uh, why? Because the priests were the powerful. Yeah, the priests were landed aristocracy. Uh, now, but what, what was their power? What was the nature of their power? What did, they, what did they control? In what way? In what way? Yeah, yeah, in what way? Religiously. Like, you know, I, think about the church. They controlled access to eternity. Oh. I mean, all, all really, I mean, that's, that's about yeah, the, the secret. They, they controlled the keys to eternity. Because, um, remember, I mean, how many... I, that, that, this is one of the virtues of traveling. You know, if you, if, you, if you travel to Egypt, so you know that the Valley of the Kings is across the river, across the Nile from the temples, the, the major temple, Temple of Luxor. So the priests were always available. to prepare, They prepared the bodies for burial. They prepared the entry into the next world. They were key. Like the church was key and the purchase of indulgences. So, so as a, um, in fact, what does the Torah do to try to correct for this, for the priests, priestly abuse? There are two corrections. They can't own property. They can't own property, and? Separation of powers? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, but, but what, what, what I just, what do priests do practically in preparing the, the, uh, the pharaohs? They can't touch them. They can't touch the dead. Right. In other words, so the so the rules so the rules of biblical priesthood are intended to prevent the abuse of power by those who control access to the divine, so to speak, or whatever. Right. So so anyway, so so the the priest um, so jo Joseph both uh, uh, so, so um, uh, um, I don't know allowed his people to become accustomed accustomed them to a, a lifestyle that. From Caesar's a lifestyle of wealth, which, which, he he interprets. Did we read it yet? Um, no, yeah, this process leads to more severe bondage. So what's he claiming? He's claiming that the Israelite wealth and led to the enslavement mm -hmm. of the Israelites. I mean, so he's reading this in a much more, you know, a metaphoric way. Yes, there was slavery in Egypt, of course, but the people were enslaved by their dependency on this structure and their society and, and the wealth, so that when they left Egypt, they were constantly complaining, remember how comfortable it was in Egypt for us. You know, and we had onions and, so and garlic. Sees, and, so he sees the wealth as being uh, uh, idolatrous. 
Yes, right? exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mayor Tamari, who's an Israeli economist, also brings up a point that he, he point he sort of that that idea of midah connected midah is one value, you know, kind of offsetting another is that you know, that Yo that Joseph brings slavery to Egypt through his is essentially right servitude. Of Correct. People. That then turns around and, and then the pharaoh introduces slavery as a way of sort of payback to, but right, but right, but the, but the, but but the uh, you know you know I I, I the the midah I'm I'm always uncomfortable with the midah connected midah as a causative relationship. Mm -hmm. It's an idea relationship rather yeah. than a cause. You know, right. it, 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 it's a rich idea mm -hmm. in that. The Israelites, in a way, what Fromm is saying, introduced slavery. They were the, they introduced slavery themselves, mm -hmm. because they got all invested in this in this mode of in this mode of life and tied to the land and property and so on and so forth and and and, and wealth and what they lost. Continue to read. Once you finish this paragraph, they here yeah, precisely because they become rich, they become slaves. Go ahead. They lose the vision of the one God, the God of their nomadic ancestors, and they worship idols. The gods of the rich turned later into their masters. Okay, so the 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 the, um, the 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 secret of Judaism, in a way, that Judaism brought to the world, is it was the first culture to introduce an immaterial god to the world, to demand of people to worship that which cannot be seen, and that which uh, and that which actually abhors. You know, in, in many ways, a materialization of, of spirit. And fascinating. I mean, not, not completely because there's a temple. I mean, but, but, <laughs> no, in other words, but, but, as, but again, as an idea, continue. I'm sorry, I, I don't know your name. I'm Robin. Robin, continue. The, the second hero. The second hero is Moses. He is charged by God to liberate his people, to lead them out of the country that has become their home, even though eventually a home for slaves and to go to the desert to celebrate. All right. So what does Moses do? By the way, what's the first thing Moses does when he becomes the leader of the people? What does he have to do in order to become their leader? Uh, right. But before that, you know, what were his origins? He has to give up being the prince. He has to give up being the prince of Egypt. He has to leave the palace. Well, he kind of had to because... Well, because of what he did. Right. All right. So he committed an act of... Uh, whatever, defiance, justice, murder, I mean, you know, uh, but he, in other words, he, he acted out on behalf of his people. And we always assume in that story that when he did that, he knew what that would, that that was it. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it was his way, it was his way out. He, le he leaves, go ahead, and then he leads the people into the desert. Continue, finish up. The, Reluctantly and with great misgiving, the Hebrews follow their leader Moses into the desert. Why don't you read the next paragraph? The desert is? The desert is the key to symbolism in this liberation. The desert is no home. It has no cities. It has no riches. It is the place of nomads who own what they need. And what they need are the necessities of life, not possessions. Historically, nomadic traditions are interwoven in the report of the Exodus and is... And it may very well be that these nomadic traditions have determined the tendency against all non-functional property and the choice of life in the desert as preparation for the life of freedom. But these historical factors only strengthen the meaning of the desert as a symbol of the unfettered non-propertied life. In other words, there's, a, there's an understanding here that the propertied life 
is a burdensome life. It, it doesn't, come without its, doesn't come without its own costs. Um, uh, 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 yet, I mean, w- one would think today that wh- who's prepared to live? I mean, I don't know, who's, who's prepared to live the unpropertied life? I don't know. You know. Um, I don't know. You know, I thought, I, I'll tell you something s- silly, but, but that I thought about. Um, just a simple, uh, uh, I mean, years ago I thought about this. We, we, when we, when we have children, if we can, if we, if we are able to, we would never dream of not providing a separate room for each child. I mean, that's, that's if we, if, if we can, if we could. And, and, and it was unheard of. I mean, look at, look at where we are and how blessed we are. Just, just in that regard. Um, so we, we're really dependent upon that. And, and, and um, all right, anyway, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe this needs a special bracha just to, <laughs> to understand that. Let alone four bathrooms. Yeah, that's right, yeah, right. Everybody in the house has to have their own bathroom. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, um, there's one person in my life, it's Kara's uh, sister, who has no need for stuff. And I always talk about her as this interesting anomaly that I admire. She lives, she lives so meagerly and she saves, she works, she saves money, she just, she, she just has no need for stuff. And it's, and it's so, it's kind of astounding to me to mm. meet somebody in this modern world who really just, just like doesn't need anything. Mm. Well, mm. well, finish up, Julie. Some of the some of the main symbols of the Jewish festivals have their origin in the connection with the desert. The unleavened bread is the bread of those who are in a hurry to leave. It is the bread of the wanderer. I, I, I have a little piece that I wrote some years ago. I called it the bread of sufficiency. And sort of the, the matzah is, di, is dayenu. Mm-hmm. Enough? Don't have to be so... Right. Go ahead. The, the sukkah tabernacle is the home of the wanderer. The equivalent of the tent, easily built and easily taken down. The sukkah that we build every year is actually symbolizes, what does it symbolize? Going out into the sukkah. Going into a voluntary... Monastery. <laughs> voluntary exile. In other words, that, that's something I want to come to. I don't know if we're going to have time to do everything. No, no, but I want you to think about this. We see exile as a punishment. I, I want to argue that the way in which, we, you know, what, what, we, what you do with bad experiences in life when you have sort of a healthy sense of self is, you, you know, you take the bad experience and then you try to, to transform it. What can I learn from this? So that you're not left with, if possible, if possible, it's not, it's not always possible. But if possible, so you're not left with only the negativity and the, and the bad taste. How do you, I, God said, I'm going to send you exile because you sinned. We transformed exile into a period of enormous creativity for the Jews. And there was suffering. But, you know, but I, I always used to say to the, to the people who told me all about, always about the Jewish suffering over the centuries. I said, yeah, but how do we, how do we have time to write all those books? If they, were, if they were burning us all the time. In other words, there was enormous creativity in, in, during the exile. You, you could almost look at it as a, um, a 
forced sabbatical, where now a sabbatical is a luxury. Right. Well, that's a whole other discussion. What a society, what a society would be like where sabbatical was something widespread and expected for everyone, including workers. Not just for, you know, the, I said the most religious place uh, in the modern world is the university. Because the university understands the value of sabbatical. Uh, I, need, I need to interrupt. I, I'm a retired university professor. And you're 100% correct until about 1985. Uh -huh. And since then, the sabbatical, which used to be a time when you could just study what you want, right. has now become at, 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 I only know three universities, UCLA, and I was at UCLA in 71 to 72. So I think it was prior to, I think Rick Levy was there. Richard Levy was there, yeah. Uh, um, and at University of Southern California at Arizona State. Sabbaticals now are you go out and you do write a book or you do research, you cannot do fly fishing. Uh -huh. That's how relax your mind. So I don't know what in sabbaticals and other professions, but at the university. But you know, but you know the idea, the idea that in a sabbatical you might learn something different from what you've learned now. I, that's that, a, that would be. That, that's a good use of sabbatical. Absolutely, I would agree. But we, I've had, I had to be an administrator for a while, and I've had deans turn down sabbaticals that I had approved. Really? Because the person on the sabbatical wanted to take technical econometrics classes to advance her knowledge. And the dean said, no, you have to write. Oh. So, I mean, and this is right. not unusual. Uh-huh, okay, all right, but, all right, but here, no, no, but here, all right, this, so, so finish on the sukkah, because he makes the point, he makes my point, the equivalent of 10, as defined in the Talmud. As defined in the Talmud is the transitionary abode. Transitory. Oh, I'm sorry, transitory abode, to be lived in instead of the fixed abode, one the, the The Talmudic term is dirat arai, and not dirat keva. I mean, I, I, also, I also want you to see what, what I want you to feel is how deeply rooted Fromm is in Jewish learning. In other words, he's not, this, this, he's not just a, a, um, a superficial reader. He's he spent time learning and he understands the culture that brought this form of Judaism forward. And he wants to give you a psychological reading that we don't always have. Let's, let's read a little bit more because uh, he gets to Shabbos and it, he's fantastic. Okay, um, the Shabbat. Shabbat is the most important of the big biblical concepts and of later Judaism. Okay, so, so in other words, the, from, from here is going to un, 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 uh, unleash the Shabbos, and you'll hear Heschel in From. He, he knew it. Heschel may have read From, actually. Go ahead. I assume it's our weekly sabbatical. Yes, it's our weekly sabbatical, yes. And, and, and remember, Achad Ha'am had already said that more than Israel has observed the Sabbath, the Sabbath has, has guarded Israel. So it's the most important of the biblical uh, concepts. Go ahead. It is the only strictly religious command in the Ten Commandments. Its fulfillment is invested upon the... Insisted. Forgive me. I'm right? Is, is that... Ins insisted. It's kind of blurry. No, no, no. I'm, otherwise, anti-ritualistic prophets... It was a most strictly observed commandment throughout 2,000 years of the dysphoria life, wherein its observation often was hard and difficult. It can hardly be doubted that in the Shabbat was the fountain of life for the Jews. 
who, scattered, powerless, and often despised and persecuted, renewed their pride and dignity when, like kings, they celebrated the Shabbat. And that, so if anyone ever read The, um, the Earth is the Lord's, you ever read the, the, the little essay by Heschel about life in Eastern Europe. So he says Eastern European Jews were paupers all week long, and on Shabbos they were kings. Go ahead. Is the Shabbat nothing but a day of rest in the mundane sense of... Freeing people. Thank you. Freeing people, at least on one day from the burden of work. To be sure it is that, and this function gives it the dignity of uh, one, one, one of the great innovations in human evolution. Yet, if this were all that it was, the Shabbat would hardly have played the central role I have just described. Okay, so a couple of things about this last line that I want to say is, so the first thing that he says is, the function gives it the dignity of one of the great innovations in human evolution. Israelite society was the first society to introduce the idea that people needed a day of rest. Nobody knew that. Nobody wanted to know that. The Romans accused the Jews of ruining the economy because their slaves were forced to rest on Shabbos. And you know, I, I, I can give you an analogy. My father, Allah Shalom, ran a, a knit goods factory. So in order to run a knit goods factory, a successful knit goods factory, the machines, the slaves had to run 24-7, right? So, but, but in my father's factory, uh, the machines got a day off the, because they, the, what do you call it? The, um, uh, uh, not, not, they weren't engineers, they were uh, uh, mechanics. The mechanics were off on Shabbos because the workers were off on Shabbos. So the, so the machines couldn't run. And he used to tell me that the Hasidic guy who owned the factory on the top floor in, the, in, in, his, in his building, he, would, he sort of worked out to sell the factory to his non-Jewish partner for the Shabbos, which is, I mean, which is legal, okay. But, you know, but, 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 but my father had this sense that his factory has to, has to be closed on Shabbos. You know, so the Romans said, you can't run an economy and give a day off to all the, you know, to every member of, the, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to everybody. Now it is true, by the way, in the state of, modern state of Israel, you need, if you're going to have a Jewish state, you need Jews, you should be able to have Jews who do some of the labor on Shabbos. It should, you sh in order to run a Jewish state, think about this, you shouldn't have to hire Arab labor to make the state run. Although, you know, there's nothing wrong with, obviously, you want Arabs to work in the state, but it, you have to work out a way. That's one of the problems of running a state with a sense of dignity and integrity with a sense of integrity. In other words, <coughs> imagine this. For years in diaspora, Jews had an institution called, excuse me, to use the term Shabbos Goy, and Colin Powell was a Shabbos Goy, you know, and he rem remembered it fondly. You know. All right. And now we create a Jewish state where, you know, we, we have to have institutionalized Shabbos Goy. It's a problem. It means you haven't, you haven't, uh, adjusted to the reality of what it means to run a modern enterprise in some ways what, what the, with, for the necessities, okay? But, but, here, but here this idea that, you know, you give a day off to everybody. Um, in, in, in antiquity, not in antiquity, in these, in these periods, right, this antiqu in antiquity, people worked for subsistence all the time. That's all they did. They worked and they slept. They ate, they worked, they slept. All of a sudden comes Hebrew culture with the idea of a day of rest. Now, my friend Yisrael Knoll taught us 
told us that the archaeologists actually found in the groups in the archaeological uh, layer of that, that corresponds to what would have been the Exodus generation. They found social groupings, mixed social groupings, of Israelite tribes from Canaan that mixed with tribes that had perhaps, that they think had come from Egypt, that, who, that created what they think are egalitarian, an egalitarian culture. How do they think it's an egalitarian culture? Because they don't find in the archeological layer the trappings of wealth. They know what, in terms of pottery, they know what wealth is. And they don't see it. In other words, there was no, cl there was no class. And, and Knoll's point was that he insists that this was a society that understood the, the, the broader ramifications of Shabbos. That it wasn't simply about a day, it was about a culture, and it was about, it was about the way you lived. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And the day in which you live without intends to teach you how not to be so tied into what, to, all, to all of that. To all of that. It's a, it's a broader notion of the, Shabbos, of the Shabbos idea. Second point, right? Uh, that Fromm makes. It's not just a day in which you take a rest. He understands that there's a difference between avodah and melacha. What's avodah? Work. Work, labor. What's melacha? I think, I think, all I can think of is mechaya, like a pleasure. <laughs> uh huh. So, so the, so the tradition connects melacha, the phrase is melechet machshevet. It's creative, it's creative. It's not just work. Because, for, and, 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 and Fram's gonna say this later on. He, on Shabbos, if you have guests in your home, and you have a two-floor house, and you need uh, your chairs, you need the chairs on the second floor because your guests are here. You can schlep this, the chairs and the table up from the first floor to the second floor. And it's a hot day, and you're actually schwitzing because you're doing that. But you can't strike a match. I mean, that's in Shabbos law. So it's not about labor. It's about creation. All right, why don't you continue to read what he says. In order to understand this role, we must penetrate to the, to the core of the Shabbat institution. It is not rest per se in the sense of not making an effort physically or mentally. It is rest in the sense of the reestablishment of complete harmony between human beings and between them and nature. Nothing must be destroyed and nothing be built. Shabbat is a day of truce in the human battle with the world. Peace with nature. Even tearing up a blade of grass is looked upon as a breach of this harmony, as is lighting a match. All right. So, so Hartman used to say, if candle lighting was 4.11, right, and you went into your garden at 4.10, and you saw a beautiful flower, so what might you do? What might you do if it's 4.10? What might you do? Pick the flower. Pick the flower. Why? Uh, all right, but that's not, I mean, hopefully that's not the only reason you pick the flower. What's the purpose of picking the flower? Or to, or, for, or to make your Shabbos more beautiful, right? You want to beautify your Shabbos. But uh, at 412, if you saw the same flower, what do you do? What? what? Not only, you admire it. You smell it, maybe. 
say a blessing. I mean, you know, in other words, that's that's. He says that the, something like the flower and I are equals. Yeah, right. that's right. You have a relationship. I mean, that would be a Buberian moment of a relationship. With, the flower is transformed from an it into a, into a thou. And you don't own it. And you don't own it. It's God's creation. It's God. You know, you know that it's God's creation. That's right. That's right. All right. So, you, so there's a sense of peace. Peace with nature. Go ahead. Neither must social change occur. It is for this reason that carrying anything on the street is forbidden even if it weighs as little as a handkerchief, while carrying a heavy load in one's garden is permitted. Go ahead, the point the is... Point is, that not, is the, the point is that not the effort of carrying a load is forbidden, but the transfer of any object from one privately owned piece of land to another, because such transfer constituted originally a transfer of property. Go ahead, on the on Shabbat. On Shabbat, one lives as if one has nothing, pursuing no aim except being that is, expressing one's essential powers, praying, studying, eating, drinking, singing, making love. Okay, and reflecting. Uh, all right, so, 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 so you can't carry on Shabbos because you can't transact on Shabbos. There are no transactions on Shabbos. I mean, now, the way in which symbolically, well, what is he talking about in terms of no, no, no transactions? What's, what's closed on Shabbos? that prevents transactions in a, in a traditional Jewish society. What do we close? Well, the marketplace. So there's no competition. That's what he talks about when he says that the social, neither must social change occur. There, there's, you know, there's no disturbing the, the potential for social harmony on Shabbos. And there's no, and, you know, and, 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 and your, uh, the, the, um, the, your possession shouldn't make a difference on Shabbos. Because it, you know, in terms of what you have, when you come to shul on Shabbos or when you when you live on Shabbos, it's you, it, not the stuff that you have. I mean, I'm not going to have time later to. to you know, I, 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 and I see where we are. No, but but I, I used to do this at Hillel all the time. I used to ask students when we used to have small groups, introduce yourselves, and then I would say to them, say something personal. So they would start like this. Um, I'm so-and-so, I'm happy to be here. I'm so-and-so, it was a hard week. And they'd say what happened. The third student would say, I'm so-and-so, I'm a psychobiology major. And then it would go downhill from there. It was all, because the students didn't have enough confidence to be able to reveal something about themselves. Because who they were was their major. Basically, who they were was going to be their profession not who they were. And that's something that, that's what Fromm is taught. Fromm says that on Shabbos, you get undressed. All the masks that you carry around saying, hi, this is, a, this is who I am, you know, are not relevant. And you just, and, and you have to try. So, so, in other words, there's peace with nature. We, tr we, try not, we, we try to live with what is without disturbing it and mastering it. There's we don't compete with our fellow. So we don't need to master our fellow. The one thing that maybe we can master is ourselves. So there's a little bit of peace within. We can be within. And also, you know, and, and the, um, there's a beautiful poem at the end. That, again, maybe we'll read it. Okay. No, about you can make love on Shabbos. That's, I, 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 I love that because it seems to me that what it's, it, it's trying to give a message that 
if Shabbos is a day of the spirit, right, writ large, then lovemaking is a spiritual act, not just a biological act. That's the great, that's the great insight. And it's also, I mean, it's, you know, it's about, it's about relationships. It's about relationships. It's not about sexuality. And, and it's one of the, again, see, a real profound teaching is a teaching for itself and beyond itself. So if Shabbos is really profound, it has lessons for how to live life during the week. Not just how to, be, right? It can't be that you're supposed to be holy just on Shabbos. That, could, that couldn't be a lesson that, that, that's valuable. Because then, you know, what it means, you know, in, in Yiddish you call it a tzaddik and pelts. It's a tzaddik wearing a fur coat. It's very, com- very, 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 very comfortable. No, the point is to get at, you know, to lead, it's, it's not, it, on Shabbos, you say Shabbat Shalom. The question, that's not, that, that's what you say on Shabbos. What do you say Monday morning? <laughs> no, good, right, good vach, or, or, or do you say Shalom, in, when you, that's good vach on Saturday night, but, but good vach is good, right? But when you come back into the office, right? Do you say good vach? Do you, say, do you still say Shalom? Does that become part of your everyday uh, being, even though it's not Shabbos any longer? Okay, so, so that's, so Shabbos is a, trans, is a day, that's what, so Fram says this, it's a day given to us that can help us transform our reality. It gives us a taste, oh, when we should go on, I'm sorry, uh, uh, what is your name? Jamie. Jamie, Jamie, please, from, what's, what's Colorado have to do with it? Uh, daughter. Yeah, daughter. Plus, one of the Hillel rabbi was ballet, don't you know him, Harley Wagman? Yes, I remember Harley Wagman. Yeah. He was the Hillel rabbi. Yes. Yeah, I remember. Okay. The Shabbat. Uh, the Shabbat is a day of joy because on that day one is fully oneself. This is the reason the Talmud calls the Shabbat the anticipation of the Messianic time. In the Messianic time, the unending Shabbat, the day on which property and money, as well as mourning and sadness, are taboo. A day in which time is defeated and pure being rules. This okay, let me, let me tell you, just, just a word about this. You know, so Judaism, again, a, a, a great lesson. Judaism has an understanding of messianic time that's unique. Because if you ask people, when will the mess- what is the messianic time in relation to our time? When, give me a chronology of what, when, what the messianic time is. When does it come? It comes at the end. Of the at the end. Meaning, uh, I guess you would say after our time, or following our time, or the culmination of our time. What is, what is Fromm saying about the rabbinic tradition? When does the Messiah come? When? Every week. So we, I call this punctuated messianism. In other words, it, and it's healthy, because end of days messianism is catastrophic. Punctuated messianism is, is eternity. It's not loaded with the political, it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't have the political baggage that end of days messianism has. Everything's gonna get cleaned up. It has here a spiritual valence to it that can actually you know, give life. It's wonderful, right? So once, and you know, he, this, is like, this is almost, this reads like a passage from Heschel, this last paragraph that you read. Uh, Jamie, continue. The, histo- the historical predecessor of the Babylonian Shabbatu. Shabbatu, yes. Was a day of sadness and fear. Yeah, it was a day of the gods on which you were prohibited from doing labor because it was dangerous. 
Because it was a bad luck day. And also, by the way, it was linked to the moon. That he doesn't say. The Babylonian Shabbatu was linked to the lunar phases. What, what, what the creation story does is it unmoors the Sabbath or Judaism from its natural, uh, what do you call, moorings and, 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 and links it to time, to creation itself. So Shabbos doesn't occur in, on the lunar phases. It's every seventh day from creation. It could, you know, right? So, so it's not, it doesn't necessarily fall on a, on a, on a phase of the moon. Yeah. Interesting. Go ahead. The modern, the modern su- Sunday is a day of fun. That's what the, the JCC always says, fun day on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, consumption and running away from oneself. One might ask if it is not time to reestablish the Shabbat as a universal day of uh, harmony. harmony and peace as a human day that anticipates the human future. So this is, this is a program. This is, I mean, in other words, here, the Valley Beit Midrash should get behind this notion that how can we bring a taste of Shabbat to the world? And it's not about making the world Jewish. That would be, you know, Jonathan Sachs has a great line. He says, the God of Israel is the God of all humanity, but the religion of Israel is not, nor nor should it be, the religion of all humanity. So that's not the issue. We don't need that for our satisfaction and a sense that we have a truth that we live. But we have an idea here that was valuable to everyone. How do you translate that in such a way that society begins to understand that? And you know, the, and, and, you know Shlomo Kalbach used to sing, the whole world is waiting to sing a song of Shabbos. So I, I, mean, I, I think we live, in, we live in a time you know, where, we, where it's so important People don't know how to rest. Yeah, the, store, what time, the stores are going to be open at 4 o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving or something like that, right? So all the more so that ancient wisdom has something to tell us about how we might live today and, and not... Okay, all right. All right, so let me tell you what com- what's coming. So that's, phase, that's, that, that's part number one. Um, so this is out of, the, out of the Desert with Eric Fromm. So the, the next few... Parts. I'll summarize. We'll look at it a little bit and 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 have a conversation about it. So, part number two contrasts the passage in the desert, the manna passage, with the quail passage, and which is so interesting to me, because the Torah links the two episodes. You know that they both are related to complaints by the Israelites about the lack of food, and. One is the natural food of the desert, and one is an unnatural food. And what's interesting about the Torah is that in the passage about the manna in Exodus, there's all of a sudden there's a verse in the middle that mentions the quail. And in the passage on the quail, in Numbers, there are a couple of verses that mention the manna. So they're linked. And the contrast between the two is intended as what I would call desert restraint as against material indulgence or lustfulness. All right, so that's part number two. Part number three that I have here on the sheets, if you turn out, because we'll, um, we're going to we'll probably take, uh, uh, go through part number two. Part number three are some passages from Maimonides who constructs the Sabbath as spiritual time. I just, 
If I can point to you to one passage um, on the top of page 11, actually the bottom of page 10, bottom of page 10, I'm going to read this, and then we're going to go back to, I just want you to see this. The sages forbade the carrying of certain objects on the Sabbath in the same manner as one carries during the week. Now, what is that, what is that, what is that, forbid, what is that prohibition called? Anybody know? It's a very sort of marginal institution that I think gets a lot of yeshiva kids down and orthodox, you know. It's called muktzah. Muktzah. You don't, you don't touch, you don't, you, you don't move money on Sabbath, even though you're not going to use it. You don't move, well, it, so, so if, take a look, take a look, uh, uh, so what he says at the bottom, uh, uh, surely the manner in which one carries on the Sabbath, said Maimonides writes, should not resemble the manner itch, in, in which one carries during the week. Top of the page, next page. In this manner, no one will regard the Sabbath as an ordinary weekday and lift up and repair articles, carrying them from room to room or from house to house, or set aside stones and the like, etc. These restrictions are necessary for since the person is idle and sitting at home, it is likely that he will seek something with which to occupy himself. Thus he will not have ceased activity and will have negated the motivating principle for the Torah's commandment, etc. as a day of rest. Very interesting. By the way, in, in the same rules, Maimonides talks about what conversations you have on Sabbath. You can't talk about your property on the Sabbath. You can't go with your, with your uh, family and take a look at your holdings on the Sabbath to assess your holdings and what, 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 what they need. It's a way of sort of changing our mindset for one day and how what we talk, what's important. It's learning about what's valuable. And it means re it's, it's about re-education once a week because all week long we spend time thinking this is valuable. And so on Shabbos, you know, you, you're around your house, oh, this doesn't belong here, this belongs here. It's, it's, not, it's not even work. It's certainly not work. And that's what muksa is. Muksa, I, I read this when I read this. That's the key to Shabbos, because that's about the spirit of Shabbos. The laws are not the laws for the law's sake. It's about learning something yourself, even during the week. What do you spend your life doing? This doesn't, you know. And sometimes nonsensical things that you do and how you get all bound up in the things. So Shabbos is about removing yourself from that uh, from that universe and creating a very different universe. For the Rambam, most probably, I mean, I don't know that we could have lived the Rambam Shabbos. You most probably have to be studying all day long. Uh, so, you know, we have the mystics. They gave us songs. They taught us that love, you know, even, even by the way, fascinating, the Rambam ends the laws of Shabbos with uh, this, uh, I think, uh, talking about some of these rules. And then he goes on to talk about um, uh, Onek Shabbat, the joy of Sabbath. And the last formulation of Onik Shabbos for the Rambam, who was a real in, into his head, Aristotelian in that regard, right, says that sexual intercourse is a fulfillment of the mitzvah of Onik Shabbat, of the joy of Sabbath. It, I mean, that's his way of saying it's a spiritual activity, which is very, very unusual for Maimonides to affirm physical pleasure in, in this regard. And then you see something that's really striking, because there are a group of Jews who say sexual intercourse is prohibited on Shabbos. 
First, in antiquity, the Book of Jubilees, and, and you see the sectarians, and maybe, maybe the Dead Sea group. We don't know for sure, because that text is not, I mean, the texts are incomplete there, so we, we, if you fill it in the right way, it looks like it, it says that, but Jubilee says it explicitly. It's a capital crime on Shabbos. You know. What? And yeah, it's a thousand years. And, and then the rabbis said that, the, that, uh, that, 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 that sages should have intercourse every Friday night. Sages. But the Rambam is the first one to say it's a mitzvah for everyone. You know why? Because the Karaites saw sexual, sexual activity as a violation. It's not, it's not spiritual. It's a violation of the very notion of the spirituality of the Sabbath. That's the key here. When you see something like that, you understand, wow. It's not, like, it's what it represents. Okay, I'm sorry, I was, I truly wanted to ask something. So, so this model of Shabbat that you're discussing, isn't this more about living a meaningful life than it is about transforming society? If you're saying this framework of relating to it this way is going to enable us to you know, reimagine our, how we think about stuff, that seems like a meaningful way to live. Correct. Uh, but if you're saying this Shabbat model is not what we think Gentiles should live, then how are you supposing this would lead to like a restructuring or trans transformation for, for society at large? Yeah, well, be, well, because it, 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 if it means that we're less attached to stuff, don't you, I mean, don't, don't you agree that, that our society is built on economically, politically about accumulation of stuff, how much power you have, how much you control. In other words, what, so so, so transforming the individual notion of meaning will have implications for the nature of what type of, 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 what, of, of, what, of what society values. Who, think about it, who, who, do, who, do, who do communities honor? Do they honor Sabbath personalities, by and large? No, I, no. In other words, now, now how, and, I, and, and, what, and what we're saying is that can the Sabbath personality be, be, a, be a successful weekday personality in, 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 in the way they do the weekday? That will mean that all sorts of structures in the world would be different. There would be sabbaticals for people. I mean, you, you, I, mean I don't know, I haven't... Are you proposing that this it can be a universalistic model, or just that Jews can do our part by living this? No, I think, I, I, I think that if it's, if it's really serious, it's something that needs to be translated. Not in terms of the details of the law, but in terms of the ideas. Okay. In, in other words, if, you see, look, I take, there's, the Rambam quotes twice in his, in his writings, Maimonides, the verse from, from Deuteronomy that says that um, the, the wise of the Gentiles should, should, should be able to see you observing your Judaism or uh, the laws, e even the laws without, supposedly without reason to say, this is a wise people, an understanding people. So that means to me that we have a test to translate what we do as Jews that give it a universal understanding that could make it relevant to others. You know, there's, there's starting to be a, a movement in, in some of the secular 
world, in the non-Jewish world, about claiming a Shabbat from our electronics. Yes. This whole unplugged movement. Yes. That, you know, saying, you know, maybe the Jews have it right about No, that. and I, I think, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, some of the leaders of this may themselves come from the world of, uh, of electronics. They, them, I mean, exactly. I mean, they understand how deeply, it, you know, how deeply embedded this is in the culture. And, and, and just talking about electronics, you know there's, uh, do you know Sh uh, Sherry Turkle's writing? She's a professor of psychology at, at MIT. And so she says something like this. Uh, I mean, she actually says that if you're having a conversation with someone and you take your cell phone and you put it down at the table, upside down, it doesn't matter, right? And you even have it off, it'll change the nature of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It'll affect the intimacy and the expectation of the conversation. Yeah. No, 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 and, and there, no, and she, and she's at MIT, she's at MIT, by the way, with researchers, and they started, they started uh, uh, experiments with classes where students can't bring their computers into class. I mean, first of all, you, you know what happens, I mean, I used to have this, you see, the students who come to class, they had their computers, they were, they were hiding behind their computer, they were, whatever they were doing, I mean, they were shopping, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever was going on, playing football, uh, you know, and, and, but apart from that, you know, it's, it's, it's what that represents, that wall. So I think, look, it, 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 it's a larger idea, and, and, and what, what, what really strikes me is that, that, that Maimonides, in his presentation of Shabbat, really seems to be, uh, understands this. And then uh, the last pass, all right, you know, so let's, let, we have about 15, 20 minutes. Let's, let me say a few words about the manna and, the, and, and, the, uh, and then we'll get to the last idea that I want to transmit, okay? So if you look at page four, look at page four. I'll do, I'll, 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 I'll do a little reading, all right? So first, I'll just, highlights on page four. So this is the passage on the manna in the desert. So the manna is desert food. All right. So God says, uh, I'm going to give you this food, if you look in verse 4, that I may thus test them to see they will, will follow my instructions or not. What's the test? I'm going to tell them that manna is coming every day. How much can they take? As much as they need, right? To each one according to their needs. Someone once said that, I think. What idea? No, in other words, so, so, so perhaps what's happening with the manna is we're taking the slave people out of Egypt and we're teaching them how to shop. How do you acquire? Acquire what's necessary, what's necessary. And if you take too much, it rots. What, 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 an interesting, what an interesting lesson. In other words, it's a lesson, and, and, what's, and what, again, what figures grand in the scheme of the manna? That's what's so striking about all of this. Shabbat. Because on Shabbat, you can't pick any. And you have to take, on Friday, enough for two days. So, so the Shabbat sort of embeds in the in the culture, this sufficiency principle that seems to be, uh, um, as uh, it, it, it carries the manna idea beyond the desert. Because in the desert, you didn't, you didn't pick any manna. During the, as you live outside the desert, you have a Shabbos where you don't prepare anything. Everything is prepared for it in that regard. So you know what, you, you have to prepare what's enough. 
Usually we eat too much, but I mean, okay. So the, so the manna introduces an injunction against hoarding. I mean, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an accumulator. I mean, you know, one of the things about talking about this doesn't mean, you know, that we're free of these vices. Sometimes talking about it is a way of sort of, you know, sharing and talking and, and seeing how, how to adjust. How do you adjust? How do you control yourself in a way? And, 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 and try to prevent the acquisition of unnecessary possessions. We become a little, be, little bit less, I don't know, a, li a little better. Right. So, so, that's, so that's the passage uh, of, of the manna. All right, now, let, let's go to Numbers 11. It starts, again, if you look at verse, uh, I'm sorry, at page uh, six, page six in the English. So verse four, the riffraff in their midst of Israel felt a gluttonous craving. And then the Israelites wept and said, if only we had meat. So Rabbi Soloveitchik, in commenting on this, you know, talks about craving. He saw it as an allusion to sensuality and sexuality. And that there's something here about meat and appetite. It's about satisfying the appetite. Um, and that, you know, and the, and the Bible is already introducing a, a, a judgment because it links the craving to the riffraff, yasaf suf. In other words, there's something here about eating meat with a degree of judgment that suggested that it contributes to a negative character. I mean, I don't want to go too far. I know we have a couple of vegetarians sitting here, very strong. But so, so, you know, clearly, it, Clearly, it's not clear in the Bible, okay? However, <laughs> however, however, it, there's a sense that meat nurtures craving. We, we, we even have in, in, um, in, 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 Deut in Deuteronomy, we have the, you know, how do we get to the idea that you can slaughter meat outside the temple? In, in, in Le Leviticus, the only legitimate slaughter of meat can take place in the temple itself. If you want to eat a behemoth, your cattle, you have to bring it as a sacrifice, then they sacrifice, then you can take it home and eat it. In Deuteronomy, what we call secular slaughter introduces, is introduced, and, it, and, and, and it's introduced by the phrase, when you desire, besar tava, you live far away from the temple, and you want to eat meat, you des it doesn't say you, you desire. Again, this idea, it's all about desire. And so then you're allowed to slaughter it outside the confines of the temple, and the shochet sort of becomes the, the secular priest in that, in that regard. And there are all sorts of, all sorts of, all sorts of law, laws. Okay, now look what happens. No sooner do we talk about gluttony and about craving than verse 7 where is, I mean, what was their complaint? Their complaint was, I, look, we, we remember all this wonderful food, and all you give us is this manna. Right? So it says in verse 7, Now the manna was like coriander seed, and in color was like a bedelium. The people would go about and gather it, grind it, etc., etc. When the dew fell in the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it. But they were not satisfied. They were crying. They were, they, they, they were you know, at, at loose ends. So turn the page. Then the Lord said to Moses, Oh, I'm sorry. Gather for me these 70 elders. Okay. But what, what uh, uh huh. Uh, uh huh. And gather, look, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. 
uh, 18, I'm sorry, 18. And say to the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat for you shall have kept whining before the Lord and saying, if only we had meat to eat, indeed we were better off in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two, not even five days or 10 or 20, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome. What is, he, what is God saying? You're going to choke on the excess. You have too much. This is what it's about. Too much. Now, of course, a, the puzzle here is how come the passage is interrupted by this thing about the 70 elders and about Eldad and Medad. I had a thought today, which was that uh, it's a contrast between um, what, what, what we're doing. We are interrupting a passage which is about material possession with these spiritual personalities, you know, who, 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 who are free. They're free in their spirituality. They're not enslaved. And, and, they, and, and, and they are, I mean, they're interesting. They're prophetic in their regard. So there's an intrusion of the spirit uh, and even the manna passage. The manna is spiritual food. And it can be satisfying. That's also one, right? It's nothing. The man is nothing, but it's full. It's, it's filling. The filling stuff, you vomit. You accumulate too much. It eats you up. It controls your life. It's unlimited. Okay. All right, so that's... that's the, let, let's go to the last, the last teaching on page uh, 12. Page 12. Okay, now, I mentioned exile before. So I was struck by the following. I was struck by how many rabbis, starting in the 16th century in Europe, started writing about um, wealth and possession and, 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 and what it costs to society. So much so that one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Jonathan Ibeshitz, who was, a, um, who was a Kabbalist and a halachist and a, and a genius, but also was involved in a, great, in a great controversy, a messianic controversy. All right. How he insisted that the rule in Deuteronomy about cancellation and, of debt be actually be observed, and how it's a great violation not to introduce. And, 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 he, and, he, and what he says, I don't, I, 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 I don't have the sheet readily, readily handy, uh, I, I, oh, I actually do. Here it is. Um, I want you to hear what he says. He says as follows. How marvelous is the commandment whose rationale allows a Jew to gain awareness that our days on earth are like the passing shade and that they reside like their ancestors as tenants in the family home with the earth and its fullness belonging to God. How do we know that? What law, what law emphasizes that? That the land belongs to God? What do we do to the land that gives us this lesson? The sabbatical year, right? right? We don't own the land, right? We possess it. Such a person will further know that it is not an expression of human perfection to busy oneself with the gathering of acquisitions and the accumulation of great amounts of things. This is Ibishitz, writing the 17th century, 18th century. For she or he will see that the land has observed the Sabbath of the Lord, with the consequence being that each person has an equal portion in the land that is a subject of God's concern. Wealthy and poor have met, and the slave freed from his master. It is the seventh year during which one casts out the idols of money, so that money will be considered as naught, 
For that reason, we observe the Shemitah, the land lies fallow, and debts are canceled during that year. This mitzvah resulted in this situation. Listen to this line. When I read this line, I, I, you know, I burst. This mitzvah, Shmuley, listen, resulted in the situation that Jews were not heavily enmeshed in business and trade. Because those transactions require loans and claims by one neighbor against the other. These interactions are not possible when this mitzvah is observed because upon reaching the seventh year, the debt is canceled. Of course, it's also impossible to run an economy. Therefore, we are obliged to nurture the quality of contentment and sufficiency without investing all of our energy into gathering wealth in violation of the just rule of the Torah. Rather, we should be among those who, whose way is blameless and follow the teaching of the Lord who provides food for all things. So too did our ancestors not turn to wealth being shepherds who were worn by the shorn wool of their sheep and drank the milk of their goats. It is the blessing of God that enriches us. Therefore, why should we not cleave unto this mitzvah, uh, cancellation of debts with purposeful attachment and joy? Jonathan Ibishitz. Okay. They're ready for the six-year mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, no, so, 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 you know, all, all I want is that this be discussed, meaning that we, we see, because we can't enact a cancellation of debt, but there are policies that could be enacted. There are ways of looking at the poor and people who are in debt and introducing some, some uh, uh, you know, uh, new, new arrangements with the banks. In other words, how you, people have thought about creative ideas, how you rebuild a society that's damaged, right? And that the cycles of years are really cycles of renewal so that you don't fall into a pattern and you allow people to redeem themselves and redeem their life and, and maybe start anew. And you don't see acquisition as, 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 as giving you title. I mean, look at what we did in the world. We gave people title because they had acquisition. They, literally, they became Lord. That was God last time I looked. So, 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 can we, is there a way to live with all of that and, and, and sort of gain some perspective and, 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 and re redesign? I, I, I mean, it, it needs a synod of, 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 of human le of, of leaders who, or, or, or at, least, at least it needs a society that says we have something to teach. Right? So just as an example, take a look here. Because we mentioned uh, exile. So, so look, at the, look at what Horowitz says. Isaiah Horowitz. Isaiah Horowitz did live in the 16th century. He was a rabbi in Prague. He went to Palestine. He studied, he studied the writings of Luria. He was a mystic. Um, and he wrote a massive work called The Two Tablets of the Covenant, which is a marvelous work. And at the end of his treatise on Sukkot, he writes the following that I translated, Since the Opportunity. Mari, why don't you read? Since the opportunity presents itself, I will make known what has been burning within me constantly from when I began to see my fellow Jews building homes like the fortresses of ministers, making for themselves permanent dwellings in this world and in this polluted land. This appears to be a distraction from the focus on redemption. Therefore, my children, even if God grants you great wealth, build homes in accord with your basic needs and not more. Don't build towers and walls out of arrogance and self-importance. Build just so that you will have a residence that is honorable, one that contains rooms for the study of Torah and practice of Teshuvah in solitude. In other words, have a room in your house that's a, a contemplative room. Have a spiritual room. Spirit, make your home into a spiritual dwelling. It sounds like it's 
been written, well, it was written yesterday. Yes, it was. Not 60 minutes, it was yesterday. So, so Go ahead. Don't build towers and walls in Scottsdale. Yeah. Go and see. <laughs> Go, Go and see Yonadab, the son of Rechab's will to his children. You shall not build homes, but live in tents all your days. Uh, I brought it for you, Jeremiah 19, uh, 20, uh, 25, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 25 here. You, you, you read the chapter about Yonadab and uh, about, uh, uh, you know, God tells Jeremiah to to, to uh, that they should bring wine to the, uh, the descendants of Yonah, and they say we don't drink wine. Our father commanded us not to not to have possessions, and not and 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 they're looked upon as virtuous. They're not Jews. They're at, they're most probably we think they're descendants of of, of Jethro. It's it's and, and 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 you know what modern biblical scholarship says. Modern biblical scholarship says uh, uh, that Jethro was the one who taught Moses monotheism, or or that. Or there was something, in other words, not so simple that it so happens that while he was tending the Jethro's sheep, he happened on the desert to have a vision of the burning bush. Think about this. And then, and the relationship to the Kenites, and I mean, there are communities, of, what, what the, what's wonderful about the Bible, I, I think, is that it proposes a, a religious tradition and it recognizes that there are spiritual communities that have wisdom to teach alongside, and we're not the only ones. We had it in last week's Torah portion. Because Malkit Tzedek, right? The king, right? As a righteous king, the, right? And and and, 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 um, uh, and as a monotheist, because he praises the God. Uh, the, 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 what's the what's the praise he uses? The creator of heaven and earth. So much, his praise is such a good praise that we actually recite it three times a day in the Amidah. Malti Tzedek, not a Jew. So, so, so the Bible recognizes spiritual communities that live alongside Israel, and, they, and it also recognizes that those, those people aspire to a type of spirituality and can add to your, to your life. So here's this, the Rechavites, about whom we know very little, right? But they're a model community, go ahead. Now, dwelling in tents is not a contemporary option, but the implication is that you should abandon the buildings that are glorious beyond what is absolutely necessary for a dwelling with rooms dedicated to spiritual contemplation. Well, okay. Now, all right, uh, uh, turn the page to the verse from Chronicles, and then we'll bring it to a conclusion. The chronicler, uh, who, who usually was not uh, a, a preacher, he, he was a, right, he was a chronicler, historian. Uh, writes towards the end, for we are sojourners with you, right? Ki geirim anachnu lefanecha. Now, the true way of living in the world is a self-understanding that everyone is a stranger in God's world. No one is permanent. No one is permanent. We are all passing through. This idea that we have permanent holdings. It, what, what, what would it mean to international relations if people would have an understanding that our that what we, what we have, somehow, it, it, it's, it's not purely ours. How would you negotiate across the table? You know, this is mine, this is yours. You know, what are the, I, I, I don't know, what would it contribute? It, it's, it's hard to imagine that it could be a political category, but I'm looking for some teaching that can inform a sense of humility, can bring a sense of humility. Where, the, where discussions are all about power and that possession brings, about a, brings a sense of power. I'm, 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 I'm climbing up a, uh, I mean, it's a lost, it's, it's a lost cause. It's, 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 I 
depressing. No. It's even more depressing because if you look at the United States, not even international, any time, any sort of inheritance tax is proposed. It's immediately called the death tax, and it is even now where you need over 95% of people are, are never going to experience it. Right. And there's still... It grabs people oh, so all right, so, so you know what? So Shmuley, maybe Shmuley's point is well taken. Maybe we have to start by in simple way, by introducing this to individuals. Let individuals learn that they have to preserve a sense of being gay rim in the world. We're lifelong gay rim wherever we live. And to be a stranger is a question of consciousness. It's not a question that I, I, don't, I have to live out on the outdoors. I have a, a, a self-understanding which is a corrective to my entitlement, to my entitlement, right? I, I have, I'm a ger, that's my title. My spiritual title is ger, no matter what else I am, wherever I live and wherever, wherever my holdings are. And then to, and in, in inducing a sense of modesty that allows, allows us to work towards a, a, a collective goal. Story. I brought you, I, I think in your sheets you have this column by Nicholas Kristof. So Kristof writes a column about a kid who, who realizes that they're living in a mansion and they don't need all the space and convinces his parents to sell the house so that they can create a foundation together. And, one, and, and her, bro, her brother is bitter because her brother likes the big space. But anyway, they buy a house that's terrific, but it's not a, a mansion. And they, have, and they have a foundation that actually can help people. Now, he says that's not the goal. The goal is not to get people to sell their homes. The goal is to get people to understand, the, in this case, the joy of giving, the fact that you have a sense that it's not all yours, will open you up to a sense of sharing and giving. And, uh, right? and, and, then, and, and that, the, how, how, how wonderful that idea of giving is. What it, what it, how it gives meaning to what you have. Giving allows you, in a way, to, to enjoy what you have in a much deeper sense. So uh, I, I would just you know, suggest that here, yeah, I'll end with this poem by, by Gibran um, on giving. You give but little when you give of your possessions. It is when you give of yourself that you truly give. You often say, I would give, but only to the deserving. The trees in your orchard say not so, nor the flocks in your pasture. They give that they may live, for, for to withhold is to perish. Wow. So see first that you yourself deserve to be a giver and an instrument of giving. That's why in lovemaking, both the man and the woman are giving something when they create life both emotionally and physically, they're actually contributing something. It's a, it's a wonderful act of creation, because everybody's giving and then something comes about. For in truth, it, and it makes life. For in truth, it is life that gives unto life, while you who deem yourself a giver are but a witness. Okay, shalom, shalom. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. 
please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to Valley Bait Madrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.